Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio, and it is a fine Friday morning on 11th of February. Now, um, your presenters today are going to be myself, Jacob, and Leo. And Leo, um, as our co-presenter, is just running a bit late, but um, he should be in um, very soon, actually. I'd like to um, acknowledge that 3CR today is being broadcast to you from the wandry land of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be, Aboriginal land, and that sovereignty was never ceded. Okay, so we have a pretty packed program today. Um, um, similar to kind of last week, we're going to be covering quite a number of kind of different themes from the aged care crisis in with an interview with Jackie Chris. And we are also, who is a rank and file ANMF member and member of Socialist Alliance. And then we're going to be probably earlier today, um, for the first interview up, we're going to be having an interview with William Briggs, um, who is a political economist and has an experience being involved as a journalist um, political activist and has recently authored a book, China, the US and USA and Capitalism's Last Crusade. But he has also been quite a regular writer for Green Left and has been um, producing articles on the whole uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict that we've been talking about on our program. Now, um, I want to sort of uh, get started. I was going to go into get started, I guess, you know, as we usually do on our program, by talking a bit about some of the some of the headline kind of news that's kind of been happening. Now, probably the main thing that has that has been happening has been a lot of the politics around the religious discrimination bill. Um, I was going to sort of wait till my co-presenter comes in to discuss that. And basically, the kind of first story I wanted to sort of bring up is nurses are. Wrote, wrote to strike as Omicron intensifies staff shortages. Now, this is, uh, this is reporting on the fact that nurses across the New South Wales and, you know, reading from the Sydney Morning Herald, um, have voted to sto- um, stage a mass strike for the first time in almost a decade amid, amid a dispute over hospital staffing levels, pay and working conditions. And the strike is going to be due to be happening on February the 15th. And it has resulted in a majority, and it, and this is result of a ballot by the New South Wales Nurses and um, Midwives Association, which resulted in a majority uh, of 200 branches endorsing national um, action. And um, some of the, um, some of Sydney's biggest hospitals, which have, you know, um, including Royal Prince Alfred, Prince, Prince of Wales, Liverpool and Westmead could be hit by mass walkouts of nurses and midwives for between 8 and 24 hours. 
And um, I guess some of the issues that has been um, driving this has been around the kind of ongoing kind of anger in response to kind of the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, but of course the whole issues of um, staffing. And basically... um, the, the argument that is being put, being put forward by um, the union officials is unless there is an improvement in patient-to-staff ratios, then we'll lose more experienced nurses, which will cause a huge shortfall in skills and worse outcomes for patients. And also the other elements is they're also calling for a pay rise above 2.5% to recognise the additional burden placed on the workforce during the pandemic. So... Yeah, this this will be. Um, I, I'm all. I think all support um, to um, the strikers, uh, to the nurses att- um, doing an industrial kind of action. I think this is going to be a very kind of important kind of action to um, to watch because you know the whole COVID nineteen pandemic has definitely highlighted the whole systematic issues with our healthcare system, and how why it needs fundamental um, um, reform. But um, my co-presenter, Leo, just got arrived, so I'll just say good morning, um, Leo. Morning, Jacob. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, um, maybe um, just to... I was going to say, um, I wanted to see if you wanted to start off a bit of a, guess, a discussion on a lot of the stuff that, I guess, has been happening on the Religious Discrimination Bill, because I guess, well, coming into this program, um, probably before we when we were sort of planning this program, we sort of assumed that we would be discussing the sort of particularities of the bill, but it looks like that the bill has basically been shelved uh, in the Senate and doesn't appear to be likely to come back. Well, if there is a time it will come back, it will be sometime in March. So, yeah, I wanted to see your, your kind of comments on that, Leo. Yeah, that's right. Thanks, Jacob. Um, I've been following the developments on this bill um, pretty closely, and um, that is what it appears to... Um, have happened. Now, the religious discrimination bill um, and the whole sort of saga around it has been really complicated and a bit of a mess. Um, If you remember, um, it was first sort of proposed as an idea following the legalisation of same-sex marriage in 2017. Then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, to sort of appease the social conservatives in the Liberal Party, um, committed to having this sort of review of religious freedom laws, which sort of culminated with the Ruddock Review and Um, recommendations that religious beliefs um, be protected. Now, that in itself is sort of a worthy course, and Australia's rights sort of protection framework was quite weak, but the way this has been done um, really is a bit of a shambles. Um, Now, this is the third draft of the Religious Discrimination Bill, and its provisions have kept being watered down more and more. Um, The bill actually contains one positive uh, change the Sex Discrimination Act, which prevents students being um, excluded from faith-based schools on the basis of their sexuality. Now, that originally wasn't extended to trans students. Um, now, that was reversed last night after the sort of overnight sitting of Parliament. So that's actually um, a good aspect of the bill, um, which has sort of been passed. Um, but the most contentious aspect of this um, statement or belief um, aspect of it. So basically under the provisions of the Act, um, if the bill were to pass, people could make all these sort of statements of belief if they believe it's part of their religion, as long as it's not malicious and there's other sort of limitations. Uh, but it's basically sort of been described as the right to be a bigot. So um, overall, this bill doesn't confer much protection. Uh, it does cause a lot of discrimination and 
Um, by the looks of it, it has been um, shelved. Um, Morrison government tried to do it before the 2022 election, but that looks unlikely. And I guess just getting your opinions on it, Jacob, um, how would you analyse Labor's response to this? Because in the end, I think it was quite embarrassing to see that five coalition MPs actually crossed um, the floor on this issue and voted against the bill entirely. Labor would have actually supported it, even if their proposed amendments had not gotten up. Mm. Yeah, well, commenting a bit on the ALP, it's it's quite clear that actually in terms of like both the Liberal Party and the ALP, the whole kind of debate around this religious discrimination bill has in some sense actually been driven by a lot of basically what you would term um, politicised... I don't, there's a better term for it, but basically they've been playing, they're basically playing political games, uh, with people's lives in, in, in some sense, because the actual kind of issue really is, um, you know, the, the Morrison government is motivated to push this bill, you know, because of their, because of their Christian, um, you know, Christ, sort of Christian fundamentalist or conservative kind of Christian kind of base. They wanted to kind of appease that kind of political base. Uh, and then at the same time, we have the Labor Party. Now, the Labor Party has kind of prided itself on, you know, being a supporter of kind of LGBTI rights, etc. But, of course, my understanding is the Labor Party also want to play a political game with this um, in a sense that they don't want to take a firm stand against this in case it upsets one particular kind of base. And, of course, the, um, the Labor Party also potentially might be making strategic kind of decisions on wanting to appeal to a certain coalition kind of voting base. And so, hence why they're not going to come, they didn't want to come against it. But, of course, what has also been, actually, since the bill has gotten shelved, it's sort of interesting that the ALP are sort of trying to pass this off as victory. I've sort of noticed this on some social media pages of a number of kind of ALP politicians. But of course, another sort of interesting thing, although I'm not completely conscious about the, the processes of parliament, etc. I don't have um, strict knowledge, because so I hope I'm not being sort of inaccurate in this. But from my understanding, the Greens actually put forward a kind of motion to essentially defer. This was in the upper house, i.e. the Senate, because the bill, from my understanding, passed the lower house, but it had to go through uh, through the um, through the Senate. But basically... The Greens put a motion, a procedural kind of motion that basically meant that, you know, debate on this bill essentially got delayed till the next um, Senate sitting. And then and then the um, Liberals then announced that they were going to um, withdraw the bill indefinitely. But one sort of thing in relation to the ALP, unlike this, like, it's almost like the, it's almost like the ALP were saved by the Greens putting that procedural sort of motion in because the actual political cost for the ALP was actually looking pretty um um was actually looking pretty bad and in fact what's actually been striking and you know we've always you know we've been always quite critical of daniel andrews but i i was actually sort of you know impressed for a labor politician that he was actually putting from quite strong language against this bill um and also actually i think there was actually reported that he was calling on his federal labor and um colleagues to actually vote against the bill so yeah you can sort of see when you see those sort of divisions actually pop up, which you know re- um, rarely kind of appear, you can kind of see, get the sense that it was even getting to the point of being too uh, much of a political cost for the Labor Party, especially given that the Labor Party wants to pride itself 
on, you know, being the party for LGBTI rights. And of course, they also played a key role in, you know, wanting to, wanting to sort of make a lot of the claim around when the Yes campaign won, they wanted to sort of make a lot of the claims around being responsible for that victory, uh, and so on, despite the fact that, you know, the Labour Party consistently has always sort of gotten in the way when it comes to issues around LGBT rights and, and marriage equality. Mm, and I agree around the um, framing for political costs because what's been interesting, um, this isn't new in terms of Labor strategy, having a small sort of target, agreeing with the coalition on key issues. But what's interesting is that this is usually seen through economic issues. Um, but the fact that this is a social issue um, that Labor seem to be sort of acquiescing in their support with the coalition um, seem to alienate a lot of their supporters from my sort of perspective and observations because it's much less easier to justify collaborating with the Liberals on issues such as um, refugees, uh, tax cuts, union busting, um, when there isn't a tangible difference on social issues. And I think this really exposed the sort of hollowness of uh, third-way neoliberalism's um, you know, claim that they are socially liberal but economically conservative because at the end of the day, um, the Labour Party will most often take an opportunist position um, on these on these matters if they think there's some sort of electoral benefit. But, yeah, it looks like, thankfully, the bill um, won't really get a vote um, until probably after the election if the Liberals win. So that is a piece of good news, I guess. Yeah, and I guess um, both sides of politics is basically now for the Liberal Party, it's now some kind of election promise that they'll put this bill... Department, vote for us, and we'll make sure we get this we get this bill forward. And then Labor is now promising that they'll remove all discrimination. So yeah, there's a, it's quite interesting how both sort of major capitalist parties are conveniently trying to sort of take advantage of the situation for their own sort of electoral gain. But anyway, we might um, conclude, I guess, this kind of discussion um, and play a quick um, a number of announcements um, before our kind of first interview. You are listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR 855 AM. Yarra City Arts presents Music in Exile at Curtin Square this Sunday, February 13th. Come along from 6pm to 8pm for a Yarra Staycation in Carlton North featuring the soulful, funky, Afrobeat-infused music of Ajak Kawai and Camille Elfagali with Rayan, who will take you on a boundary-redefining classical and electronic journey through the Middle East and North Africa. For all Yarra Staycation events, visit yarracity.vic.gov.au slash rediscover. Yarra City Arts is a 3CR supporter. Hi, my name's Pilar Aguilera and I'm 3CR's chairperson. I'm urging you to become a 3CR subscriber. We need to keep independent, radical, dissenting voices on air. Social change doesn't just happen. We need to nurture it. We desperately need to hear alternative ideas that allow us to organise, build community and change the systems that continue to oppress us and destroy the planet. Put your money where your mouth is. Become a member. Subscribe today. 
when disaster hits a group of islands scattered around the ocean like Tonga, it is evident how the responses and actions can be difficult for these multitude of uh, beings have no idea what to do, plus no equipment or tools to work with, and the impact will show on everything, physically, mentally, financially, and people due to being uninformed and unequipped. So maybe this is, um, this is a question for the Tongan government. How can you manage situation like this better in the future? Subscribe to 3CR, informed, articulate and alternative. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. Okay, you are listening to Green Left Radio. Pass it on to Leo to introduce the guest. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, we are starting with our first interview, which is with William Briggs, a political economist um, who has experience of being involved as a teacher, journalist, and political activist, and has recently authored a book entitled China, the US, and Capitalism's Last Crusade. He's also a regular writer for Green Left and recently produced an article titled The US Role in the Russia-Ukraine Conflict, which will form the basis of our discussion. Good morning, William. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Leah. How are you? Um, very well, thanks. Um, I guess the first question um, is, what really has prompted the latest round of the Russia-Ukraine tensions? Because in the last sort of major iteration of it, I guess, around the annexation of Crimea and then the conflict um, in Donetsk, um, there was, I guess, a noticeable sort of build-up of tensions around the Euromaidan protests um, and then culminating in... Um, uh, the removal of Yanukovych there, at least from my perspective, it seems that these tensions have sort of emerged out of nowhere. Is that your impression, and what do you see as the US role in this? Yeah, right. Um, firstly, I think uh, we need to go back a few years uh, prior to um, the issues that you spoke of so correctly. Um, United States foreign policy uh, concerning the former Soviet Union, we need to go back to about '91 when the um, Soviet Union still tentatively existed, and Bush Sr. and Gorbachev were trying to work out where the future would lie. As a consequence of that, there were a range of meetings, and his, uh, Bush's then Secretary of State James Baker met with and, and ironed out some policy issues for the region. Chiefly among that was that, yes... Uh, NATO can have East Germany, if you like, to put it as crudely as that. But in, in, in return, and it has been 
it was established that, and I used the two, quote it fairly accurately, not one inch eastward or NATO into either former Soviet uh, republics or former allies of the Soviet Union. Now, that deal lasted about three years, and ever since then, there was a sort of a, almost like a salami slicing of, of the area. Country after country would be taken into NATO. And significant in that is uh, Article 5 of the NATO uh, doctrine, which says that if, if a NATO country is deemed to be under attack, then NATO will defend. Now, this is the background to what, is, what started happening in 2014 with Ukraine. So many countries have gone. Ukraine remained uh, uh, a re relatively reasonable alliance with, with Russia until 2014, of course. And it's a policy that the United States had started a lot earlier, and Russia uh, now appears to be acting uh, very unconscionably by saying to a sovereign state, you cannot be part of NATO. But the deal was that it wouldn't be, and Russia feels itself, probably rightfully, totally encircled by hostile forces. Um, and the Ukraine has played a significant role in that. Now, um, US foreign policy, of course, follows a number of transparent patterns political, military, and chiefly economic. And we, we've seen over the years the political and the military areas of foreign policy in Europe being very successfully enacted. And now, with the United States economy in fairly deep crisis, with $30 trillion worth of debt, there's an absolute reservoir of resources in Russia for, uh, for exploitation. And I think that's really the background of the war. I don't think it came out of nowhere. I think it's been... A, a long time coming. Hmm. And that guess brings us to, um, it's Jacob here, um, the kind of next kind of question, which is, I mean, I guess more commenting on Ru Russian sort of, um, Russia's sort of motivations, I guess, on all this, like, do you think that, you know, Russia is attempting to assert itself as a hegemonic power in the East, given, you know, the whole context of China's replacement of the later in that role in this kind of new kind of Cold War kind of scenario that we kind of face, you know, between, you know, the Western sort of nations and the United States on one end, and then, of course, you have countries like Russia and, and China. So I want to kind of hear some of your analysis on that. Yeah, Russia certainly sees itself, whether you can use the term hegemon, I don't know, but it sees itself as a traditionally great power. And it has built its whole history on fairly extreme nationalism. And it maintains its sense of legitimacy at home by the nationalist sort of flag. We are great, we have been great, and we will be great. Uh, not terribly different to the United States in this respect. Um, Obviously, and Putin is fairly clear about this, he wants to restore the pride, if you like, of former Soviet Union. That includes um, territory if he could achieve it. Now, if possible, he would like to have uh, Russian enclaves, at least in, in, in the Ukraine, if not that, if not reincorporation of Ukraine into the, the old empire, as it were. But at, at bottom line, 
He wants to see himself and his country as re-establishing pride. They were fairly harshly treated and done by after the union collapse. Uh, carpetbaggers just moved in and, and uh, it was a fairly humiliating time for them. And rightly or wrongly, that nationalism is reasserting itself. And that is one of the reasons, I think, why it's being met by such uh, aggressive stance by the United States. Now, inevitably, clashes will occur when you have nationalisms bumping into each other. And uh, Ukraine is being manipulated by the United States to become another serious nationalism in the region. Whether it's uh, seeking hegemony, it's just it sees itself as um, the leading figure in that sphere of influence and is trying to reassert what it once had. I guess that's where we are. Uh, just following up on that question of nationalism, um, to what extent do you think Russophobia in the West um, has shaped some of the US response around this? I think in the past sort of decade we've seen a resurgence of anti-Russian sentiment. There was the whole sort of Russia gate campaign by the Democrats, essentially blaming Hillary Clinton's loss on a couple of thousand dollars of Russian funding for some memes on Facebook. Um, you know, it's like a pattern of fear of Russia, for example, when the Sputnik there um, vaccine came out, immediate sort of doubts about it. How do you think this has influenced, if, if at all, American policy, at least sort of underlying? Oh, yes. Um, a little bit earlier I mentioned that um, Putin is playing very much to a domestic audience for the legitimacy of the United States to play exactly the same role. And I can't remember the name of the author, but there was a fictional author many years ago who had one of his characters saying, hell, if we, what's the point of being an American if you can't have a Cold War? Um, it, their foreign policy has been de designated around Cold War politics actually long before the Cold War started. It was an anti-Soviet thing from 1970 on, but it's an easy trigger to pull in the United States because it had such a long, long history of being of uh, being anti-Russian, anti-Soviet. Uh, that has just been re-energised re in the last period, partly because of the re-emergence of Russia under Putin as a, as a strong, viable power, and partly because of the United States' global decline particularly in, in relation to China. Um, so the United States is attempting to do two things. It's attempting to politically maintain its unassailable role as uh, leader of the world and to dig itself out of some fairly serious economic holes vis-à-vis uh, -vis its shrinking um, economic place in the world and, again, to capture market. So the anti-Russian thing was a really easy one for them to, to re-energise because it's been it's a bit like our anti-China um, sentiment in this country. It is so easy to scratch the surface and have it pop because we've been like that since since um, the first fleet, if you like. We've been sort of fearful of China, the same way as the United States totally unrealistically and unnecessarily have been fearful of of Russia. Uh, it's just old, knee-jerk um, 
reactions to, to issues that really are never there. But it is based in this idea of uh, we a weaker Russia means a stronger America. Mm. And on that aspect of a weaker Russia, um, as you touched on earlier, one of the tools, um, I guess, used by the US and the West has been this um, cultivation of Ukrainian nationalism, which has seen quite sort of grotesque right-wing manifestations of it. Um, what's your analysis on that and the potential dangers about a reawakened Ukrainian nationalism, which, you know, Russian nationalism is a force itself and, as you said, has quite negative aspects, but some of the sort of um, history of Ukrainian nationalism, especially sort of collaboration during World War II and the sort of Nazi aspect of it, um, what's your analysis of that whole situation? Oh, yes, this, this becomes a, a really, really dangerous issue and one that can be manipulated, not necessarily even by, by Ukrainians themselves, but they, I think, are being manipulated from abroad through, through the US. But inside the Ukraine, as, as you so rightly pointed out, then have this long history of fairly extreme national sentiment. Um, the, the position during, during the war... As you say, with the collaboration with, with, with the Nazis, um, the guerrilla campaigns that were being waged against the Soviets, they had. It's, it's an interesting thing because they also had a long, long period, of, a long history of fairly close collaboration. I mean, the whole concept of Russia goes back to the Rus. I mean, uh, the, the, there's an undeniable link between them. Although um, politics in this era have been sadly motivated by the, uh, the nationalist trigger. And that's what we're seeing in, in the Ukraine today. And it's when we see television reports of, of kids being drilled and all the rest of it, it's, it's a very scary thing because truth gets citizen very quickly in all of this. And um, the flag waving, the, the tub thumping is so easily manipulated, particularly with, with young people who don't really understand or experience a lot of things, even in this country. I mean, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, concepts of Anzac Day and all these sorts of things were really it slipped away into nothing in this country. And within the space of two governments, there's not a kid in a school in this country who won't be able to tell you with hand on heart that uh, our, our troops went off to Gallipoli to protect and save our future. Now, if we can do it here... And how much more simple is it when you can be told that the enemy is just 20 kilometres down the road? So, yes, the nationalist thing, I think, as you, as you pointed out, is a real danger in the Ukraine because the, the fascist elements were so central to their achieving the sort of government that they've got now. And um, get gets in. I'm I'm because you wrote a, a quite an interesting article as well on um, the whole question around um, Taiwan and I guess um, the United States kind of policy. And I think you've kind of given you've given a very good kind of background and I guess an overview of a, a lot of the kind of different elements that are kind of driving you know, the, the whole Russian Ukraine kind of conflict. And of course, but then also talk about you've also 
really raised a lot of great points around the US's United States kind of whole role in this as well. And I guess I want to sort of take um, a question, I want to sort of ask this question, and this can be a bit of a concluding kind of question that we're going to, with some opportunity for some final comments as well. I want to kind of hear what is your sort of take and your um, understanding and your kind of analysis of what are some of the similarities between, you know, the United States kind of policy towards Ukraine but, and also their policy towards the question of Taiwan and China? Because I think in some cases there's actually certain parallels um, to, um, to the situation, especially with, you know, how, how there's this obviously this big push to get Ukraine into NATO, um, which obviously is all about kind of in a certain sense is motivated entirely by the imperialist kind of interests of the United States and also keeping Russia in line, um, so to speak. Mm. Yes, you're, you're dead right. The parallels are there. It's fairly... Now, US policy is, to give them their credit, curve for something, at least transparent. They, they make no bones about what they're all about. With, with Taiwan, and again, it's, uh, it's nothing happens of itself or out of a vacuum. Um, when the pivot to Asia began, that was followed by the dredging of the islands. It was a, it was a, a response to a perceived threat on China's part. Um, the United States have now continued the ringing of China with, with um, nuclear-armed or potential weaponry. That includes positioning on Taiwan uh, uh, barrages for missiles that are three or four minutes flying time to Beijing. Now, not surprisingly, China sees that as a, as a fairly worrying, worrying concept. China, rightly or wrongly, see Taiwan as Chinese territory. Um, the Americans in the 70s, when they de-recognised Taiwan and recognised China, China as the legitimate sovereign Chinese entity, kept a, an ambiguous clause in, in their policy with Taiwan that if Taiwan were threatened, we would support Taiwan militarily if necessary. Now, it's almost as if they are making sure that threat happens by the, uh, the aggressive tone in the region, now positioning missile bases on Taiwan, um, upping the ante with uh, trade, all the rest of it, uh, quasi-diplomatic relations uh, with some of their allies, including Australia, with Taiwan, doing everything within their power to stir the pot. And whenever China responds to, to an exercise like this, it becomes further proof that China are a threat and therefore have to be responded to, stood up to, as Dutton would say. Exactly the same scenario really happening uh, on the, the other hemisphere where we keep on pushing, Russia responds in some kind, just in words rather than deed, as both sides have been doing, but therefore that proves there is a threat, therefore we have to counter the threat. So the Taiwan thing is, is particularly, I mean, dangerous for us because it's close to us, but... The two are linked so closely, and the policy of the United States is is unashamedly militaristic in their foreign policy uh, uh, capacities. 
a lot of countries frame foreign policy through uh, economic requirements, political requirements, and so on. The United States, because it was formed in the heyday of imperialist power, where countries took what they needed or thought what they needed, America came into being during that period. And so it is really deeply entrenched in its psyche that you frame foreign policy with three three uh, prongs to the, to the spear, to the trident, economic, political and military. The military becomes an expression of foreign policy. The last century, sadly, has shown that to be very much the case. So the Taiwan and Ukraine thing, I think, are, um, as you say, so much in parallel, so much in common, and so horribly transparent on their part. Um, and I guess just to sort of conclude the interview, um, wondering whether you have any final comments, William, or any sort of predictions, I guess, for how this will pan out. <laughs> predictions. I'll cast my eye over the crystal ball. Uh, predictions I try to avoid, but uh, to go to, to the, the Ukraine first, the, my prediction would be that some sort of status quo will maintain. Russia, I don't believe, are, in the, are crazy enough to, to, to attempt an invasion. There wouldn't be any troops on the ground in the United States, but the Russian economy would be absolutely shattered. Uh, I don't think anything particular will happen there. There'll be a lot of huff, a lot of puff, and some way along the way, Facebook's attempt to be found. Um, it's not going to go away, though, because the United States still have the economic imperative of weakening Russia. With China and Taiwan, that is possibly more problematic because China, having now made such proclamations that we will take Taiwan if necessary, what happens when you get to a stage where push does come to shove, I don't know. I hope it doesn't, and I hope that progressive forces around the world, including here, can build the alliance required to, to make governments, make states unable to act with impunity as we have for so many, many decades. That, I think, might be a big ask, but it's something that we've all got to struggle for. Mm. Well, yeah, thank you um, very much um, for that, um, William. I think this has been uh, a very kind of informative kind of interview and I think a very good kind of discussion, especially going through, I guess, all the kind of complexities of this whole kind of conflict. Um, so, yeah, I'd like to thank you very much, um, William, for being on our program. And absolute pleasure. Hey. All right. So we're just um, interviewing William Briggs, um, who is a political economist and also just want to make a plug recently. He's also an author and has actually recently authored a book, which we might actually get him to speak about at some point, um, which is titled China, the USA and Capitalism's Last Crusade. But at the same time, he's also been a regular writer for Green Left and, yeah, has produced articles to the effect around the U.S., um, um, around the U.S.'s role in the Russian-Ukraine conflict, but then also talking about the U.S.'s policy around um, Taiwan. Okay, I might just go, I'll play a quick announcement. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science, and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. 
After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains. And the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio and we have five minutes until our next interview for the program. So I thought I'd um, space things out a bit and we'll play a bit of a song. So... I'm going to play A Change Is Going To Come by Kocha Edwards. Um, so hope you enjoy. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. I was born by the river in a little tent Just like the river I've been running ever since been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gon' come, oh yes it will. It's been too hard to live but I'm afraid to die, cause I don't know what's up there, beyond the sky. Been a long, long time coming, but I know change gon' come. Oh, yes, it will. I go to the movies and I go downtown. Somebody keeps telling me, don't. Say, brother, help me, please. But he winds up knocking me down. Back down on my knees. There's been times when I thought I couldn't last for long. I'm able to carry on. It's been a long, long time coming, but I know change gon' come. Oh, yes, it will.
All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and we are just, um, you're just listening to A Change Is Going To Come by Kucha Edwards, and now we're just going right into our second interview for the program today, and we have on the line Jackie Chris, um, who is a rank and file ANMF member, and also a member of Socialist Alliance, and has also recently produced an article for Green Left on the whole kind of aged care kind of disaster that has been kind of happening in the midst of, you know, I guess the, the, um, the, um, the current state of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so, yeah, good morning, Jackie. Good morning, Jason. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Um, so I guess the kind of first question has been, I guess, following this kind of current sort of COVID sort of wave or outbreak or whatever way you want to kind of describe it, um, one of the most kind of disastrous consequences has been its impact on um, the aged care sector. And I guess this has been regularly kind of described as a crisis in the media. Uh, and in fact, this is not the first time um, that it seems to be obviously a recurring story, like every time um, there's some kind of COVID wave or every time there's some COVID outbreak, there's always seems to be you know, some issue related to disaster related to kind of aged care. And I guess, what can you tell us, Jackie, about, you know, tell us about the situation affecting aged care right now? Ah, OK. So um, anyone who has a loved one in aged care and or who's got anyone in aged care, because some young people are in aged care, knows that aged care is in a shambles at the moment. So it's definitely in crisis, regardless of what Morrison and Colbert want to have, however they want to paint it. Um, first of all, I want to say, Jacob, I want to offer my deepest condolences to all those who've lost loved ones in aged care facilities because it's often a disenfranchised grief because um, some, some of the people have been prevented from being with their loved ones in the last stages of their life and there's been a lot of people in that um, category and it's been really, really tragic. Um, but to answer your question... Residential aged care is overwhelmingly borne the brunt of um, COVID-19 being overrepresented in the death statistics and um, there's some pretty alarming figures. So I've um, been sort of looking at it. They're, these are a couple of days old, so they've obviously got worse. So we've got 1,500 deaths in aged care facilities over the pandemic time, two years. Now... 1,900 people have died in the last, in the past six weeks were in aged care. Sorry, that, that's the total in aged, sorry. 500, oh sorry, I'm getting a bit mixed up. The 500 people, um, of the 1,900 people that have died in the past six weeks were in aged care. Sorry about that, just something leaves for work. Um, and there's been 40,000 residents have not had their booster shots, so that's pretty damning of the government. I mean, why? Like, that's ridiculous. We've known for a long time that these, this is, you know, they've needed booster shots. Um, there's also extended periods of lockdown, which is having a really detrimental effect on, yeah, on the residents. Um, there's long, some people are locked down for 10 days at a time. So this is leading to neglect. Uh, so, it's staff going without hygiene. We've heard of people missing meals. Um, I know of one person that's had, like a lot of people are getting fresh areas because they're not being moved enough. 
Um, and of course, they're not being monitored, so there's falls, unwitnessed um, falls, wound breakdowns, there's urinary tract infections not being picked up. Um, so there's a whole range of issues um, that are coming with this. Um, there's like um, medical issues that are complicating uh, the, the lack of staff and the lack of care. Um, and at any given time, we hear like there's multiple shifts, thousands of shifts over, you know, over Australia not being filled. Um, there's also a third, a third of the deaths in Australia from COVID have happened in residential care. Um, and um, more than half of the facilities at the moment in New South Wales are battling with outbreaks. And just recently, we've heard... Um, Jetta Gardens in Queensland, that has had an outbreak. So that is similar to St Basil's, actually, because um, their numbers are increasing. So St Basil's had 45 deaths in Victoria, and that was really shocking. But Jetta Gardens Garden facility is actually heading the same direction. They've had 15 deaths recently, and they've had a lot of staff... Um, contracting the disease, uh, the virus. 82 staff have contracted it. 100 residents have been infected. And the Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission, which is the organisation that goes around and monitors um, aged care, they're wanting to evacuate, but the Department of Health has stopped that. So, yeah, so that's sort of the state of play at the moment. It's pretty sad. Mm. Hi, Jackie. Leah here as well. Um, just touching on the Department of Health response, um, federally, I guess, but on a state level too, um, what's your analysis? Do you have any comments on the government's response um, to this crisis, including the $800, payment, $800 payment that's being offered to aged care workers? Oh, well, look, I think they have a lot of thought bubbles, the government, but um, it's obviously a desperate uh, attempt to win back staff. Um, but it's a very short-term measure, so there's no planning or real commitment. It's not enticing people back to the sector because the there's sort of nobody left to come back. Um, so anyone, everyone, everyone that I've spoken to thinks it's a pathetic response um, and is calling in the army to help, like, oh, my God, why didn't they think about things before? So obviously they're not long-term solutions. It's a bit ironic because... They kind of, every time something goes wrong, and it doesn't matter if it's in aged care or whatever, they call the army in. So if you want to fight the virus, call the army. So I think the army actually are very stretched at the moment anyway. And, you know, they're public servants going in to fix, again, a private institution. So whenever something goes right, they call in um, public, the public institutions to fix private things. No, but the, the Army's also still doing stuff with COVID, like they're doing PPE deliveries, they're picking up rubbish, I believe, they're COVID testing in isolated areas. So I don't even know if they've got the capacity to sort this out anyway. But in answer to your response, this is just a laughable um, solution. It's just not working. They need a wage. People need a, like a decent wage rise. That's $800 is just a very just slap in the face, really. Hmm. And I guess the kind of issues affecting um, aged care go, I guess, way beyond the guess COVID, um, the impacts of the current COVID nineteen pandemic. And I guess um, they have a historical kind of legacy. In fact, 
you could actually almost say that what the COVID-19 pandemic has actually done is it's actually revealed, it's actually exasperated the problems that were actually already present in the aged care um, sector. And I guess, what can you tell us about how the issues of privatisation and neoliberalism have impacted on, on the aged care sector? Well, I think that's really the heart of the issue. Um, so, because I've been a nurse for 40 years, I've seen things come and I, I, I can actually track the changes. And um, you may be shocked that I've been nursing that long. Um, so, when I was a young nurse, uh, nurses enrolled nurses. And I've been thinking about this lately because um, it's quite interesting. So, back when I was a young nurse, there were only nurses, registered nurses and enrolled nurses were the predominant workers in aged care. And there were very few unskilled staff. The nursing homes were called nursing homes because there were nurses working in them. And then um, around about, I think it was 1997, the Aged Care Act was introduced and this removed mandatory staffing levels and it opened the door for privatisation of uh, nursing homes because most of them were kind of like not not-for-profit or publicly-owned nursing homes then. And um, this um, opened the door to privatisation and fostered also the reliance on, uh, like, unqualified or very limited qualifications and a casualised workforce, which was underpaid. And over the years, the pay has got worse and worse. So after a while, the word nursing was removed and, it, and nursing homes were named aged care facilities and um, now you're hard-pressed to find a nurse or an, uh, even an enrolled nurse in a nursing home sometimes. Um, so the privatisation of the sector has meant the aged care, um, aged care has become a lucrative business. So these providers are big companies. Um, they're sometimes listed on the share market. It's a big global market often known by overseas interests. And they operate on a purely profit-driven model, of course, they all have their mission statements. They all say they care and they value everyone. But like, so do, you know, gun clubs have mission statements. So the proof, you know, the proof is in the figures. So, um, um, and that, back in 2018, I know the ANMF, which is the nurses union that I'm in, uh, commissioned the Tax Justice Network to investigate the private aid sector. Um, and, they found that in 2017, the six largest all-profit companies were given more than $2.17 billion in government subsidies. So these private providers, that, that actually gave them 72% of their total revenue. And then in 2016-2017, these very same companies reported profits of $210 million. So... Um, I just, I'm not very good at maths, but it begs the question, how can these, these, these um, nursing, well, aged care facilities, they're, they're big businesses and they make, they cannibalise the public system. They cannibalise the, the public purse for their own profit. So these, and these companies do use sophisticated accounting methods, accounting methods to avoid tax. So, um, they're very, they pay very limited tax. Um, and I hark back to, uh, when was it? 2018, pre-COVID, when I call it the Foodgate scandal broke out, revealing that, um, the common practice of spending 
less than 6.8 cents per day on food, if you recall. Um, so that's sort of what we're dealing with. This is a historical um, perspective uh, that's been going on for a long time. So there was no way that these aged care facilities, privatised, profit-driven, could have um, handled a pandemic. There's no way. They were just scraping. They weren't even scraping through beforehand. Um, yeah, so, yeah, it's a very profit-driven. That's what it is. Mm. And, Jack, you've touched on um, some of the systemic um, problems there with aged care, particularly around privatisation. Um, to, I guess, sort of flip it, what are some of the measures that need to be implemented in order to address these um, mm-hmm. problems? Um, well, the ANMS, they've got... Since 2001, they've had various... Uh, aged care campaigns, because I've been through about six of them, um, and they've tried to address similar issues. But they've got a campaign going at the moment called the Four Key Actions to Fix Aged Care, and that is so they want a registered nurse on site at all times, greater transparency and funding tied to care, so they want to know where the money's going not in the pockets, tip pockets of these big business, um, big conglomerations. Um, minimum mandated care hours, so that, so that, that the patients actually get, or the residents get proper care, and better wages and conditions. So we would, I would um, support all of that. But the Health Services Union have also put in a wage rise for aged care workers, the 25%. But there's, that's sitting with... Uh, the fair work still has been sitting there since 2020, and I think the fair work have just got, you know, they've got cuts too. I don't think they can um, process anything because the nurses have we've got our um, EBA sitting there for, um, you know, EBA has been sitting at the fair work waiting to be ratified, and that hasn't happened yet either. So I don't know when that's going to happen, but we would certainly support like a massive, and they need a massive uplift with um, wages for the aged care sector. But I, um, none of them actually say privatise, uh, you know, in privatisation. And I'm a member of Socialist Alliance. So we, we are actually campaigning for an end to the privatisation of the aged care. I think they've had a good go. They've been, you know, they've, they've shown their true colours. They haven't been able to handle the pandemic. They were not, they They've been rotting the system for years, and I think it's time to stop. It's time for us to take um, private aged care back into public hands. We certainly need greater transparency where the funding is going and make sure this um, funding... Because aged care have had a lot of funding and they've had a lot of money, so people say they're underfunded, but I do wonder where the money is going because that's sort sort of where you want to know where the money's going and is it really underfunded. It probably is. But still, we don't know where that money's going. It's certainly not going where it should be. And we want to ensure that public funds um, and these people are made accountable and we want to stop the rorting. Uh, also, we want immediate wage rise, which I said, to these work, to the workers and the nurses because there's a disparity with the um, aged care nurses and the public sector, which that often happens. We want an end to casualisation of the uh, workforce, the aged care workforce as well. All right. That's about it. 
Well, just that's just, I guess, right on time in terms of um, wanting to kind of conclude the kind of interview. Do you guess have any kind of brief final comments you'd like to make before we um, finish up this interview? Um, I think we often forget about migrant workers in the sector, so I just want to say that um, private aged care providers also um, engage in exploitative practices with um, using low wage and casual migrant workers. They're hired to maximise profit margins. So I think what we need to do is ensure that um, migrant workers are looked after, they're employed, you know, on a permanent basis and they're given full industrial residency and citizenship. Um, And we need to look after them as well. But um, we also, I think, what what we need to do is just respect our elderly. Um, The other thing, because... If our society actually looks at, um, we don't look after our elderly at the moment. It doesn't show. It's the key indicator of a healthy society. If we do treat our elderly and we care for them, but clearly we're not doing that at the moment. And if we're leaving it up to the market forces, it's been a dismal failure. So we do need to take take back private aged care and put it into public hands. So that's my last comment. <laughs> Thanks. And a good way to um, to conclude. Thank you very much, um, um, Jackie. And um, yeah, um, I think yeah. All uh, thank you very much for being on our program. And yeah, we wish you all the best in, in terms of your struggle, especially like as an active ANMF um, delegate and member. <laughs> oh, thank you, Jacob. Thanks, Leah. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We were just speaking to um, Jackie Chris, um, who is an AN, uh, ANMF um, and nurse and also a member of Social Alliance about the whole crisis affecting the aged care sector. Now, I think we'll go into a quick Green Left um, activist calendar, but I'm just going to go play a quick announcement. You are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Get your radical summer attire sorted. New stock of 3CR Radical Radio Tees has just landed, featuring the iconic antenna design by artist Emily Floyd. As well as our basic black, we have a range of great pastel and primary colours in a variety of sizes. And for those radical little people, we have a short run of kids' tees available too. For just $30 for adults or $20 for kids, you can get yourself a local, ethically manufactured and printed tee that supports Radical Community Radio. We can send one out in the post and there's Click and Collect from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or if you're fully vaxxed, you can drop in and browse our t-shirt rack during business hours. To purchase online, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And now it is time for the Green Left kind of activist calendar. So I want to highlight, I guess, a number of kind of political events that I guess are coming up. So the first event I want to highlight is on Friday, February the 11th, which is tonight, there's going to be a public forum organised by Green Left and Socialist Alliance titled COVID-19 Disaster Workers Fight Back. And that's going to be happening at 6.30pm at the MUA Hall at 46 Island Street in West Melbourne. But this event is also going to be available online. And so if you just go onto the greenleft.org.au website, you should be able to get uh, the Zoom link for that. 
And then on Tuesday, February the 15th, um, despite the fact um, there is going to be a rally organised by Rainbow Rebellion um, against the Religious Discrimination Bill, I think it will probably be more, the rally might be reframed a bit more as a bit of a ritual march or because the bill has been shelved, essentially. But the rally is, as far as I know, still going ahead. And I think, you know, it will be important, I think, to mobilise because I think it's definitely worth, you know, putting a good kind of mobilisation. So it's going to be happening at 5pm on Tuesday, uh, February the 15th, um, at the State Library. Then on Wednesday, uh, February the 16th, there's going to be an online book launch by Readings, Crimes Against Nature, which features um, Jeff Sparrow and Tony Birch in um, in conversation. And then on Thursday, the 17th of February, there's going to be a public forum, Terry Lear, The Politics of Permaculture, at 5.30pm with drinks at 5pm um, at the New International Bookshop, Trades Hall 54 Victoria Street in Carlton South. And then on Sunday, February the 20th, there's going to be a volunteers meeting, Socialist Alliance election campaign. Socialist Alliance is standing Sue Bolton in the seat of Wills and Felix Dance and Angela Khan Senate. Hear from the candidates and find out how you can get involved in the campaign. Lunch and drinks are available. And that's going to be happening at 12.30pm at the Harry Atchison Arts and Crafts Centre, Lake Grove, um, Coburg Lakes Reserve. And then on Sunday, the 27th, there is going to be a march for justice, but the details don't seem to be um, confirmed, like there's no venue or anything. And then on Saturday, March the 5th, there's going to be a rally, Free the Refugees, at 2pm at the State Library at Swanson Street in the city. All right. Well, um, I think that's... um, that's. I'll just go, I think that's pretty much it in terms of upcoming kind of political events. Um, so that's the Green, um, that's the green Left um, activist kind of done. Now, I'll just go, I think I'll just play, I'll play another announcement. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. So um, for the next 15 minutes, I was just going to play a pre-recording from a Green Left kind of podcast on why the PKK should be taken off the terrorist list. And just to give a bit of a brief introduction, a new change.org petition to the Australian government to delist the Kurdistan Workers' Party, PKK, as terrorists has been initiated by the Federation of um, Democratic Kurdish Society, Australia. Peter Boyle spoke to Fion Skidros, a Melbourne-based activist and the co-chair of the North and East Syria Solidarity, NES, one of the solidarity groups promoting the petition campaign. So, yep, hope um, listeners enjoy. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Hello and welcome to the people-powered Green Left Podcast, where you give a voice to the 99% of the big corporations. 
If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. I'm Peter Boyle. I'm speaking today to Fionn Skiotis, a Melbourne-based solidarity activist and co-chair of North and East Syria Solidarity. What's the significance of this uh, this new petition uh, to delist the PKK as a terrorist organisation in Australia? Well, I think the new petition here is part of an international campaign, um, which is taken off in other countries as well, particularly in Europe. Um, to have the PKK delisted or, or uh, deregistered as a terrorist organisation in all those countries. Um, it is banned or prescribed in the US, the UK, European countries here, New Zealand, Canada, I think, and so on. And and um, and so the, the effort to change that has to be an international one. And um, there have been attempts in Australia previously to have the ban overturned, um, particularly at times when the ban was renewed by the Australian government. Um, but this new attempt comes, at, I think, in, 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 um, as part of attempts overseas to, to bring this issue to a head and have finally a change that will see the PKK, the status of the PKK regularised. Is it countries. true that the Australian government has only recently relisted uh, the PKK. And yes, it is. So, uh, were, 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 there, were there any, did the government show signs of taking any into consideration some of the concerns by made by the Kurdish community and their supporters in Australia? Look, the, the PKK was banned in Australia in 2006 um, after a decision by the Howard government at the time, Conservative government, at the end of 2005, following a visit by then Prime Minister Erdogan. And that's been renewed uh, initially, I think, every three years, and more recently with a change in the regulations every two years. Um, so well, I'm not sure about that. That could be the other way around. But certainly it's periodic, periodic renewal. And that you're right, that has just happened um, last year. Um, look, the government does make some statements about the need I think I think the way they express it is the need to uh, connect with the Kurdish community here and make sure that they don't feel that they're being you know singled out or victimized or that a ban on the PKK somehow makes their community you know uh, uh, the subject of some particular criticism or anything like that but uh, really it doesn't amount to much I mean there is not a commitment from the government that I'm aware of to review that decision um, and there was certainly no uh, no acceptance of the submissions at the time to not, not to renew the ban on the PKK. Um, by listing the PKK, it, this imposes quite a serious limitation on the rights of uh, the freedom of political expression of, of Kurds who may support the liberation struggle um, um, that, that, that is being waged uh, all over Kurdistan? Hmm. It's a very, very much a real issue, a very live issue. Um, and in fact, you know, members of the Kurdish community have made that point repeatedly to the, to the Australian government that they feel that they are restricted, their rights are restricted, they feel that they're targeted. Um, and, you know, at times that has a very real practical 
you know, um, it, it, it's a very real practical thing. For example, some years ago now, the Melbourne Kurdish community was raided by armed federal police, um, and you know, great trauma and and uh, and um, you know, very, very serious imposition on people's liberties and and very scary for the people involved. That hasn't been repeated since then, but that just shows the the extent to which. Uh, there can be a targeting of the community here for engaging in political activity that is legal, but uh, you know, the suspicion falls on the community through the, in large part, I think, through the banning of the PKK. And what I was going to say earlier is that this was very well expressed. In fact, the very first time the PKK was banned, two members of the parliamentary committee, um, which is uh, the Joint Parliamentary Committee on Intelligence and Security, there were two Labor members of that committee at that time in 2006 who uh, expressed strong reservations about the the action of banning the PKK. And the key point that they made was that the Kurdish community in Australia would uh, you know would see that and would experience that as a restriction on their legitimate political activity. Um, that it could lead to victimisation of members of the Kurdish community. Um, and uh, they had every right to express their political beliefs as Australian citizens here. So, in, in Europe, there have been um, uh, court cases, decisions, which have uh, have have put forward the argument that the PKK, you know, in legal terms, should not be described as a terrorist organisation. So, I mean, these these I think are the first cracks beginning to appear. I mean, notably in Belgium. I think, as you're aware, the, the decision there to, um, by the high, highest court there, to, it chose not to pursue a case against, uh, Kurdish, uh, activists. Um, and implicit in its decision was that the BKK should not be seen as a terrorist organization or a banned organization. And so the case against those activists did not proceed. And that was a really critical decision. Uh, curiously, it was rejected by the government, the Belgian government, who said that despite the uh, decision of the country's highest court, they would continue to regard the PKK as a banned organisation. That in itself is rather extraordinary. But these, these sorts of that and some other decisions are beginning to appear now, which we hope are the first cracks that lead to the crumbling of this um, this ridiculous uh, labelling of the PKK as a terrorist organisation, which quite obviously it's not. Now, clearly that um, all these international listings of the PKK um, as a terrorist organization um, tend to, to give justification to the, to the uh, Erdogan regime's uh, criminalization, attempt to fully criminalize virtually any Kurdish uh, political activity or even sometimes Kurdish cultural expression. Uh, That's right. In Turkey. Well, exactly. In, in Turkey, you can go to jail and for significant periods for something as simple as saying a Kurdish expression or singing a Kurdish song. Um, you know, th- this can be drummed up into support for a terrorist organization. Similarly, and probably more extensively, the uh, many politicians in, in Turkey, elected politicians within, you know, the, the democratic system that they supposedly have there have been are stripped of their positions and jailed in many cases because they are regarded as supporting 
a terrorist organization, namely the PKK. So it is used um, very effectively by the increasingly dictatorial Erdogan regime. And, and, and further, it is used in an international context, I think, as justification by Turkey for its now very open warfare against the Kurdish people right across a number of different parts of Kurdistan, different countries. Um, you know, for example, we've seen recent attacks in northern Iraq, in northern and eastern Syria, in the Shangal area in, in Iraq. Um, and, you know, Turkey does these seemingly with impunity and is not criticised in the international organisations, the UN and so forth, uh, or, or on a bilateral basis by countries like Australia, like the US, like the European countries. Um, I think part of the justification for Turkey doing that is that they are pursuing a terrorist organisation. While the listing of the PKK as a terror organisation in the countries of the, of the West, um, to use a shorthand expression, uh, remains, that Turkey will be able to use that. So it is very important, I think, for the Kurdish liberation movement and its supporters to change that. One of the uh, consequences of the, of the uh, listing of the PKK as a terrorist organization or the acceptance of this idea has been the extraordinary um, incarceration largely in, in, uh, under conditions of extreme isolation of, of Kurdish leader Abdullah Öcalan. And um, how do you see this campaign uh, relating to the campaign for, for, for freedom of, of Mr. Öcalan, but also even the right to to say his name. I mean, there's extraordinary censorship. I don't think we've seen this with almost any other leader of a liberation movement. The degree of censorship that exists, especially in this age of new media of of, of the internet. Um, mm. So, how do you see the two issues uh, as connect? How do you see them as interconnected? Yeah, they're very closely connected. Um, I mean. Abdullah Öcalan is indisputably the leader of the Kurdish uh, uh, liberation movement and, and Kurds worldwide, I would say. Um, and so you're right, the, the justification for not only jailing him but isolating him away from all contact with people um, is, is largely founded on this notion, this ridiculous notion that the PKK is a terrorist organisation and he's therefore the head of a terrorist organisation. Um, and that suits the Turkish state to a T, to be able to say that, to lock him away. I mean, interestingly, when it does suit them, they can conveniently turn aside from that. When there were some steps towards a peace process in 2015, um, you know, there were, it suddenly became possible for Abdullah Öcalan to communicate with people and to get some messages out uh, and so on. So it's obviously, you know, not such a big thing in reality, for him to to be able to speak and be able to communicate and be part of a constructive process. But the Turkish state sabotaged that peace process back then, and since then, unfortunately, there's not been nothing but aggression and open uh, you know, violence against Kurds in both within Turkey and northern Kurdistan and in other parts of Kurdistan. The PKK, which is called terrorists, has initiated so many peace um, overtures and um, peace negotiations and ceasefires. And, uh, yeah, and it's called a terrorist while Turkey continues 
to wage permanent war on Kurds within Turkey and outside, as you say. That's right. I mean, the real terrorist is Erdogan, and the terror regime is the Turkish state, which is, in all kinds of ways, is uh, waging war. It's also supporting genuine terror organizations. And the connection between the Turkish state, Erdogan's regime, and groups like Islamic State is, is very clear and has not yet been properly accepted or covered in the Western media, I don't think. Um, so Turkey still pretends at some levels to, you know, to, to be part of attempts to crush Islamic State. That's, that's far from the truth. So Turkey is both a supporter of terror and a terrorist entity in its own right. Um, and the key to peace in Turkey and elsewhere in the Middle East, in parts of Kurdistan, as you say, is, is the Kurdish liberation movement and Abdullah Öcalan at its head. Um, you know, if, if Turkey were to, if international pressure were to lead to his being not isolated and ultimately released, and if there was some overtures for, towards a more peaceful uh, settlement from the Turkish state, perhaps under a different, different leadership, um, I think the reality would quickly emerge that the PKK is no terrorist organisation, has not engaged in terror and is not interested in engaging in terror, it's engaged in a legitimate struggle uh, for the interests of Kurdistan and, and the Kurds. And that will become clear if there are those changes. We have to hope that there will be and we have to push for that. And part of that, I think, is those two struggles that you mentioned for the freedom and liberation of Abdullah Öcalan and for the delisting of the PKK as a terror organisation in this country and, and other countries around the world. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month, sharing this show on social media and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org.au. All right, so you're just listening to a podcast um, by Greenleft, which was titled Why the PKK Should Be Taken Off the Terrorist List. And you can actually get, uh, you can actually download the podcast that we've just played, um, and it is available on the Greenleft website or specifically the Greenleft Podbean. Um, so if you go search up Greenleft um, um, Podbean, um, you should be able to get um, the link to that program. Anyway, um, we probably have like around kind of seven minutes um, left on the program and I thought maybe we'll start a bit, I guess, a bit of a kind of discussion. And, and this is, guess, this is sort of drawing from uh, a Green Left article um, that was just part, um, that is part of the Fighting Fund um, this week for Green Left, which is um, this question around a reminder that Australia is a plutocracy. And Peter Boyle wrote this article and you know, commenting a bit, starting off, starting off, I guess, the discussion. Um, there's a federal election ca- um, coming around the corner, and the Australian Electoral Commission's annual report on donations to political parties on February 1st, you know, was, a, in a sense, a, sub, a sober reminder that Australia is, in a sense, a, a country ruled by the rich, and that we have uh, about to have another deeply corrupted exercise on democracy. As the, the, the chair of the Centre for Public Integrity, um, Anthony Wheely, Wheely um, QC told ABC News, what we can see is that a handful of donors dominate the funding of political parties. Big money has big impact with the top 10 donors funding almost a quarter of all donations. 
one of Australia's richest um, people, billionaire um, Anthony Platt, was the biggest declared political donor, giving some $1.3 million to the Liberals. The other usual suspects, including the big mining companies, fossil fuel companies, corporate media companies, developers and gambling and alcohol companies, were all there, giving nearly all their donations to the traditional parties of government, the Liberals and the Nationals and Labor. And, of course, since the information in this report is from a year or so ago, um, the, the traditional jump in political donations ahead of the next federal election included. And, of course, more than uh, a third of political donations are anonymous because of long-standing loopholes in the disclosure rules. So, yeah, um, Leah, do you sort of have any sort of comments on some of these elements? I mean... I guess you've, you've touched on so many of them. We, we could list... Um, just the different um, aspects of how Australia, you know, which purports to be a democracy, isn't um, from the massive you know, contributions given by private corporations to political parties. <laughs> just recently we've seen the attempts to deregister a lot of smaller political parties. I think this just highlights how important it is to have um, independent and activist media, Australia's media sort of um, ownership is already so saturated and controlled by corporate interests that Green Left does really invaluable work and um, it's obviously not free to run, so if you can support us, um, we really would appreciate it. Yeah, and I think, yeah, that's, um, I guess, yeah, one of the kind of elements of this is, you know, I think it is kind of like this reminder because often, you know, when we live in a country like uh, Australia, things like Living in a country like Australia, it's always kind of framed in the terms of, you know, we live in a liberal democracy, you know, everyone has a right to say um, what they want and, and so on. But it's always quite clear when you look at any capitalist country, any capitalist state, no matter whether it has an authoritarian sort of democratic stru- uh, structure or not democratic, authoritarian structure or a democratic structure, ultimately the story is the same. The rich have the rich and powerful have a disproportionate influence over how our political system is run. And yeah, and I think, um, Leo, you're correct, and I think that is that does raise the importance of independent activist media like Greenleft, but also raises the importance of community radio like our program that we're doing right now, Green um, on Free CR Community Radio. So, you know, we need to be, you know, telling the stories of the of the oppressed, of the marginalised, of the people who don't get who don't have access to these dominant sort of platforms uh, and able and or and of course the other thing is we don't have money um, like we don't have the money to throw around whereas these big capitalists do and it puts them gives them a lot of disproportionate influence over our kind of political system. Okay, well, um, I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. Um, it's been a, a very um, a, a great program where we've covered a lot of different kind of aspects, including the aged care crisis, the U.S.-Russian conflict, and also the um, and also the, um, the 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 whole campaign um, to delist the PKK. And now. On that, this one announcement I actually forgot to announce. So on Tuesday, the 15th of February, there is going to be a rally organised by the Kurdish community, uh, all in relation to a lot of the issues that were kind of raised in the previous interview that we kind of played. And that's going to be happening at, as far as I know, 12pm at the Parliament House at um, on the 15th of February next Tuesday. Um, but yeah... Um, Leah, do you have any kind of final words you want to say? No, thanks everyone for tuning in. It's really been a jam-packed program, as Jacob has said, and um, I hope we um, see you all tune in next week as well. 
Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the farmers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right. The commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.